Well, we're in the 11th message of our trek through the book of Esther. If you have your Bible, please open to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8. The doctrinal thread that runs through the book, of course, is the doctrine of God's providence. According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Now, that means that no one is sitting in this room. No one is watching live stream. Uh, No one may be watching this months from now. By accident. You're here for a reason. And God has placed you here. Now that also means there is nothing in your life or mine. This is where it gets hard. There's no circumstance or situation that is there by happenstance or by chance. Now I'm starting here, of course, because the book is here, but also because there are things in my world today that are just circumstances, situations that, that honestly are conspiring to undermine my confidence in God's providence, at least in this way, that his providence is working for my good. There are things I can't see a way out or I go, this is not good. My guess is it's true for all of us in some way at all times. Things in our life that, you know, maybe you see no way out. I don't know how we're going to... And what's challenged is, yes, it can be... What's challenged is, is God in control? Well, we can kind of settle that and go, God, you are in control. But go the next step and you go, "Mm, but your control doesn't feel good and it doesn't look good and I don't know how it's going to be good. Now, the book of Esther is the antidote to these things. Through the life of Esther and Mordecai, God pulls back the curtain, right? The curtain just keeps coming back little by little as we go through this book to give us glimpses of, think of the theme of the series, of his veiled providence and their visible faith and how the two of those together God uses to deliver his people from undeliverable circumstances. And the truth is, God continues to do that today. Last week, Bill covered chapter 7, spelled the end of Haman. Pride had done what pride always does. You know what pride always does? You know what the end of pride always is? Destruction and death. Uh, If you missed the message, may I encourage you to catch it online. Um, it, It could save your life. Because as Bill reminded us, there's a little bit of Haman in all of us. Now notice chapter 7, verse 10. It leads us into our text today, which is chapter 8. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. There's a sense to which you read that last sentence and you go, the king's anger subsided. Everything's okay. But what do we know? Everything's not okay. Look, it's great that the king's anger has subsided, but what is the greater problem that remains? You say it to me. What's the greater problem that remains? Tell me in the story. Yeah, there's a day coming by decree 
that every Jew in the, in the kingdom will be killed. Men, women, and children and their plunder taken. Think of it this way. Haman's dead, but the decree lives. And when you think about it, Haman's nothing. One man's nothing compared to this decree. Now, we live 2,500 years removed from the story. And if, you know, if I asked you, you know how it turns out? You'd go, yes. We know how it turns out. But look, put ourselves back in the story. Mordecai and Esther and the Jews, they had no idea how God would deliver them. Even as his veiled providence was at work. Now let me give you the outline for chapter 8. There's four parts to it. The reversal, the plea, the decree, and the celebration. I'm going to repeat these as I go through it. There's four parts to this. We'll move quickly. There's the reversal in verses 1 and 2. Then there's the plea of Esther in verses 3 through 8. Then 9 through 14 is the decree itself. We'll touch on that. And we'll end with 15 to 17, the celebration. Let's follow along. This is God's word to you and to me on this Lord's day. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Ahasuerus, following Persian tradition, convicted felon is killed or you know, put in jail. That, that in Persia, they would take their possessions and they would go to the throne. Then the throne would disperse them as they wish. Think of it in these categories. Haman's possessions, okay, his power, even his position, has now been given to Esther, who has now given it to Mordecai. You talk about a reversal. I mean, think about it. You know, we're in it, and maybe we get numb to it a bit. It's just the tip of the iceberg. One of the things I invited our community groups this week to do, small groups to be about, is I said, I said take a look at the story and find all the, all the reversals. Look at all the reversals going this way and then it looks, goes the other way. Find those reversals because it's a reminder to us. And can I say to you, and I say it to myself, God continues to make reversals. Put the word redeem on it. It's going this way. God continues to redeem and bring back situations, circumstances in your life and mine. But one of the things I, I don't have time to explore, but I want to invite you to think about, is that these reversals are not equal reversals. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. It's not that Haman was over Mordecai. Oh, look, God's changed it. Now Mordecai's over Haman. That's not what happens in God's reversals. Read the text carefully, and what you see is Haman was over Mordecai. God has reversed it, and Mordecai is so far beyond where Haman ever was. This is the work of God's redemption. When you read it, even just one little snippet, the signet ring. You know, Haman got the signet ring when, when, when he did the decree and he said, okay, here's the signet ring, you can use it. But Mordecai's just given it flat out on the front end. Here's the signet ring. We'll see where Haman, uh, you know, sends out a decree and, you know, the decree goes out and it gets spread out to the country. But when we read the decree in a moment, I want you to notice the way the decree goes out from Mordecai. It goes out on the royal studs. It goes out with the king. You know, it's all these things. It's always reversals are not, in biblical reversals are not, okay, we're going to change this reversal. It's, it's a biblical reversal that supersedes what's going on, even when it's going the wrong 
way. Let me think, I want you to think about this even in, a, in maybe a practical note. Take, take a marriage, for example, and take a marriage that's going the wrong way. And you know what? That's true for all of us at many times in our marriages, y'all. And a marriage is going the wrong way and the, the hurt and the harm that comes, even as that marriage goes the wrong way, but, but in, in God's providence and kindness, that marriage can, is redeemed and it's turned and it goes the other way. It's not, it's not, it doesn't always happen. But when it does, you know, it's not that that marriage was going this way and it was hurtful and harmful and then it goes the other way and it's all good. No, when God redeems a marriage, the fruit of that redeemed marriage is supersedes many times what was going on when it was going the wrong way. This true in God's reversals and redemption. Some of you over the last three years or, or, or more have been involved with Larry Kayser, uh, pastor of marriage and family. Who, Larry's been quietly under the waterline working with some of you to mentor you, to train you, to help you re-engage your own marriage such that you, not a pastoral team, but we, the people of God, you have been trained and equipped to walk with marriages that are in crisis, to help, help them reverse and redeem, to counsel young couples before they get married. May your tribe increase. But that's what happens when God turns a home. I assure you, the fruit of that is eternal and significant beyond measure. That's, that's just the reversal and a thought around it. Let's go to the plea. The plea of Esther, verse 3, Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose, stood before the king. Then she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Amathada, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure... How can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Look, behold, I've I've given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they hanged on the gallows because he had stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you, using the emphatic position on this sentence, it's like, look, you, you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. Esther asked him to do what he can't do. Esther asked the impossible of the most powerful king on the planet. Don't miss this thought. The most powerful king on the planet can't stop the decree of death. She says, when she says, would you revoke it, what it means literally in the Hebrew, it says, Will you, would you cause to return the letters you sent out? This is like blowing the dandelion and then saying, oh, would you cause the seeds to come back to the dandelion? He cannot stop the decree of death. But, note of hope, is it not? Who's got the signet ring now? Who has it? See, Mordecai's got the signet ring. You write a decree which will counteract this decree, seal it with the king's signet ring. Now, we'll talk about the decree in a moment. I want you to notice that Esther in chapter 8 is not the Esther of chapter 4. 
You notice that? Think, think about it. Think about how the story's progressing. Think about Esther's progressing. In chapter 4, uh, Mordecai comes and says, You have got to go and implore the king to save the Jews. And what was Esther's response? Do you remember her response when Mordecai said, Go do it? What was her initial response? What did she say? Tell me. What did she say? Remember? I, I can't do that because if I do that, I will what? I'll die. See, that was her response. Now, notice we're in chapter 8. You don't see any sense of that in Esther at this point. uh, Esther now, listen, she's actually doing what Mordecai said to do in chapter 4, plead, implore. Now she is weeping, wailing. She's crying out. I can't bear to see this. But she's not crying out for her life. Whose life is she pleading for? Tell me, whose life? The Jews' life, something really significant is happening. You see, Esther now recognizes that her, 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 her goal, you see, is not, not just her own deliverance, right? But the deliverance of others. Say it another way. Esther's, I'll take, I'll grab some stuff. Esther's possessions, her, her power, her position. She's looking at going, saying, you know what? That doesn't matter as much as my purpose. See, all that, all I got, it's not as important as my purpose, which is I'm here to save others, not just myself. And it requires us. To ask the question, is it that clear for you and for me? Is, is it, you know, is, all, is everything I have, my position, power, place I am, whatever, is it, is it for me or has God placed me, given me, entrusted me these things such that I may save others? Listen. We're gathered together. If you've placed your faith in Christ and you know the Lord, hallelujah. But it's not just about you. And it's not just about me. Saved that we might save others. Given stuff that we might use it to influence for the kingdom, not our own. My family, for the last 14, 15 years, we've gone to family camp. I've talked about this, a camp down in Texas, Pine Cove. And, of course, it's a camp that comes here. They travel on the road and we'll do stuff for our kids here. But we've been going to a camp in Texas for all these many years. And we go to a place called Cryer Creek. It's between Austin and Houston. And, and Cryer Creek's a part of, of Pine Cove. But, you know, Cryer Creek was a deer camp, 700, 600, 700 acres you know what they do in Texas? You know, we do it so much around here, but, you know, they buy this land, then they build these big fences around it, and then they grow these exotics and these amazing deer, you know. And then you shoot them, you know, when you go in there, which, you know, I'm a hunter, so, you know, it's, I kind of like that. Um, we, they, 14, 15 years ago, a couple bought this deer camp from a guy who was cultivating it for, you know, for, for deer hunting. Uh, you wouldn't know him, uh, Mark and Kelly Elkins. Um, you'd know... Uh, Carol Worsham. Some of you know Carol here, Russ and Carol. It's Carol's brother-in-law and sister. And this thought came to me even out of this text because what they did is they bought the, they bought the deer camp. It's a pretty, pretty massive investment. And what they did was they took it and they deeded it over to Pine Cove camps. I cannot count in the last 15 years the thousands 
of college students who have been discipled through those camps as they've grown. I cannot count the thousands of students and kids who have come to faith in Christ through the camp that was deeded over to them. An amazing, you know, you know what I'd have done? I'd have, if I had had those resources, I'd have built the fence higher <laughs> and I'd have taken my friends there for the rest of my life, a little Shangri-La hunting thing, you know, just for me, you know, kind of thing. But they did not. And I tell you, it strikes honestly at the very center of our mission as a church. Can I say, can I remind us, we're here to proclaim Jesus Christ, to mature in our faith, and to give our lives away. That's why we exist. A very personal maybe even practical application, if I can go there once again. I said earlier that, you know, in August, we're going we're gonna to need a hun- hundreds of us to serve uh, in, our, in our learning center. And when, when, when this in principle becomes reality in our heart, and we know, we understand, we're, we're, not, we're not where we are, we don't have what we have, and we're not here as a church for ourselves, but for the kingdom of God. I tell you, when that begins to birth in our hearts, you know, it's, we don't have to bend each other's arms to go, hey, we need help here, we need help. Because what will birth in our hearts is the privilege and responsibility we have, let's start here, to lead our kids to faith in Christ, to lead our students to maturity in Christ. And when we get that opportunity, I think what could happen, I didn't know this would ever happen, I don't want to put this expectation on us, but it goes here to me. When that explodes in our hearts, you know what happened? Could it would be this. What if, Marty and Allie, over our children, had a waiting list to serve. So you go over and go, man, I, I'd like to serve and learn. And, and Marty, man, we'd love you too. Would you come back next year? Because I got a waiting list. Well, how did you get a waiting list? Because people recognize why we're here. Oh, that God might do it in my heart. I'm not just trying to shame us into something. I'm trying to go, this is what happens in our hearts because we know it's not about us. And Esther, you see this change in her? It's amazing. The reversal, the plea, then comes the decree, verses 9 to 14. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day. It was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes. These are leaders in 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 the provinces of the provinces which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. Let me tell you something. Haman's decree went out on common horses. (laughs) See, this is the reversal. This decree is going out on the royal horses, you know, from the king. And then the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month... Adar, y'all were nine months away from this. Haman's decree goes out, two and a half months go by, 
And now this decree is going out. We've got nine months to D-Day. A copy of the edict is to be issued as law in each and every province. It was published to all the people so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, hastened and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds, and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. Now, we read that. I know that we cannot help it. Some, we know what happened, so it's not so much, what way, hey, what happened here, but we might ask a little bit of the why. You stumble over this phrase, we're going to, you can defend yourself, and by the way, you can kill the women and the children and take their plunder. Um, th- th- this is part of reading our Bibles and standing back and trying to be astute and wise in our interpretations. You know, when you read this, it, it, is, it is a hard reading, and, and, and some, some translate it differently. For example, how many of you read from the NIV, the New International Version? A large number of you. It's the most popular one, by the way, out there. We teach from the NASB. I want you to notice how the verse reads in the NIV. Look at this in the NIV. Those who have it, you see it, but look on the screen. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. Do you see what the NIV has done? The NIV has relieved the tension, hasn't it? How has it relieved the tension? Suddenly, the women and children here are not the Persian women and children. Whose women and children are they? The Jews. See, it's just flipped it. And so you got to go, oh my gosh, that's totally different from what I just read in this. Well, which is it? I want to suggest it's the harder reading. I want to suggest it's a harder reason. There's a number of reasons, but I'm going to give you two. Um, it's, it's more consistent and true to the text and the story itself when we read it. When we understand that what the, what the writer is doing in this literary piece is you've got Haman's edict. And I'm just using this as an example. Let's just say Haman's edict goes out with five specific points. What the writer is doing is showing that Mordecai's edict is going out with the exact five specific points corresponding it. You see that? It's, it's literary. It's going, hey, he said they're going to do this. No, you're going to do this. And it matches. So there's literary reason for this. Now, it's still difficult, but we need not back away from it. Deborah Reed in her commentary, it's excellent, on the Tyndale series, says this. It is this point that is primary and dominates the author's description of the new edict. That it was this, it was this, and now it's this. You know, it matches. This is consistent with his story's design and purpose. So the text needs to be interpreted as it stands rather than be watered down to accommodate modern moral standards. Let me give you a theological basis for this as well, if I may. Uh, Alistair Begg helped me here when he, he, re- he pointed out that in this time in redemptive history, and by the way, this is not how Christians respond to their enemies. We know that, okay? But in redemptive history, as we're moving toward the coming of Christ, at this time in redemptive history, what was the law of the land? Finish this phrase for me. An eye for an eye and a... You know the law of the land. You knew what the law of the land was. And, you know, we kind of go, ooh, that's kind of brutal. That's kind of hard. Well, you know what? It's even Stephen is what it is. And in a sense, the law of the land prevented overstepping your vengeance. Now, think about us in our flesh. We get hurt or harmed. 
it's not often we go, okay, you hurt me this much, so I'm going to hurt you that much. We're even. It's not how it works, is it, in our flesh? What do we do? But let's just go to the one thing I think many can relate to. Anybody struggle with a little road rage at all? Just a tiny bit of road rage? Have you ever, I do, and, and sometimes are, are a kid, you know, I had a kid come through my neighborhood one time on a motorcycle, and I, I wasn't going to go just tell him, don't go that fast. I wanted to find the kid and strangle him. You know, I wanted to just totally go overboard. Same with a, driving in a car. You, I'm glad I don't get to do what I, what I, what I want to do and say to people. when I'm, dry, I'm glad I don't get the opportunity. Thank God, right? I'm restrained in that way. I thought about, you remember fried green tomatoes? Do you remember Tawanda? Do you remember the Volkswagen Beetle pulled in her parking spot? And then she just pounded it and pounded it, right? That's our flesh. And in this setting, please understand that what's happening here is God's, God's got a governor on the nation of Israel. You can't overstep this. You can't just attack anyone. You just can't kill everybody. No, it's going to match what the previous edict said. And we'll read in chapter 9. We'll note 70,000 men were killed. No women and children are mentioned in that. And we'll also note in chapter 9, three times it says that Israel did not lay their hands on the plunder. The reversal, the plea, the decree, the celebration. Verses 15 to 17. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple in the city of Susa, shouted and rejoiced. Can I ask you this? Did Haman ever go out dressed up like that? No. Haman, Mordecai, reversal. Mordecai dressed up to the T's right in this royal robe. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Here's the point. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews. For the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. I'll comment on the celebration in a moment. Let me grab the back end of this. I want you to consider that. I want you to consider the fruit. I mean, what, what's, what happened as a result of their celebration? And note, it says, and many among the peoples of the land become Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Don't miss this because it's rare, unfortunately. But here's an instance where the people of God in a foreign land had an influence on the foreigners and not the other way around. Wow. How about you and I, the people of God, in the world? You see, how many times is it the world influences the church versus the church influences the world? And that's what happened in this instance. Joyce Baldwin says, Only here in the Old Testament is reference made to people of other races becoming Jews. Wow. So here we have an example of the nation doing what the nation was made to do. Remember, he said to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. And here we have an Old Testament example of that, where I assure you those who, who, who came, came to be Jews were, were blessed as a result of the, the Jews, you see, being in all those provinces. Now, I don't think it's an accident that when the Jews' deliverance by God became visible to the Persians. Now, watch, track with me on this. In other words, when the Persians saw that these Jews were, by their actions, by their response to, their, to, 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 to what's happening in the promise of God, let's say, they responded to life's trials and tribulations. When they saw that in the Jews, then many became Jews. What am I, what my point I'm making, Ray Stedman said this many years ago, in the eyes of the world, it's not our relationship with Jesus that counts. It's our resemblance to him, end quote. Now... 
when, when my salvation becomes evident to people who don't know God by my life, you see, that's what matters. I just want to say, you know, for those who don't know Christ and some in the room here, but especially as we, where we go, where we live, where we play, you're, you're, you can talk about your relationship with God and you have one all day long, but it's not, it doesn't matter. What matters is your resemblance. And you see, in that point, it gets very tangible and tactile. Do your choices. And does my life reflect Jesus? The, 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 how I'm responding. I don't even, I'm not even trying to speak to that person, but I'm living a certain way. And they're watching. You see, in that, it seems, is what happened here. God providentially works in your life and mine, just like he worked in there. To deliver you and I from undeliverable circumstances. In other words, to, to reverse the ship, so to speak. To make a way out when there's no way out. In order that through that, Christ is shaped more fully in us. For the good of others. That they might know him. This is the theme, even as we follow through this chapter. They celebrated, and we will celebrate as we conclude at the Lord's table. And I'm going to ask the ushers to, to rise up. And if you begin passing the, the elements for the Lord's table. Aaron, if you want to come on out. We end, we end with a celebration, even as the text did. And I'm going to continue to teach as this is passed around. Let me say this to you. If you have placed your faith, if you have trusted, and you're trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that what Jesus did, he did for you. He lived the life you couldn't live, a perfect life. And he died the death that we all deserve for the wages of sin is death. If you trust that, this is the good news of the gospel. And you're welcome to celebrate this table with us. Even if you're a guest, you're in town for the weekend, please join us at this table. I'm going to ask you to take the bread and the cup and hold it. Of course, we believe these are symbolic of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And then we will take them together. We will end with a song and a benediction. Take the bread, take the cup, and hold them. Now as you do, I'm going to ask you to think about something with me. The Jews, you notice here, light, gladness, joy, celebration, feast, holiday. They're at this point in time, and they're expressing joy. But, but don't miss that they haven't been delivered yet. We've got nine months, and there's going to come a day out here in nine months when it's going to be nasty, truly but what are they doing? Think about it. They're believing the promise. They're believing that God's delivering them. You know it's future. And it brings them joy. Now my joy meter, I can tell you guys this. Here's where my joy meter goes. Things are going good. Yes, yes, yes. Joy, joy. Uh-oh. Bad things happen. No joy. Things are going good. Yes, yes, yes. 
Things are not going well. This is my joy meter. Now, I know everyone's not wired like me, and some of you have a strong joy meter, which is fabulous. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, so much of it and many times in my joy is not when I'm walking by the Spirit. Of course I'm going to have joy. But there's something in this story that intrigues me because it seems that the Jews have reached forward and taken future joy, brought it back to their present. Just a thought to think about. Because here's what we know. You and I live in a time when, you know, the circumstances of life are difficult and hard. And there's times, you know, there's no joy in Mudville at times. It's just so difficult. But, but God says we can have joy irregardless of the circumstances. And I think part of that, just part of it, because it's, it's the fruit of the Spirit, part of that could be tied to this. Our ultimate joy, you all, is future. Don't miss that. I mean, as good as joy is now, and it's real, our ultimate, unblemished, eternal, unvarnished, beyond words, joy. It's it's in our future. Whether we go to be with Christ or Christ returns, you see. And I want to suggest that some of our joy can deepen when we grasp that future joy by the Spirit based on the word and we own it and it owns us in our present circumstances because that joy can't be touched by present circumstances it's eternal it's secure it's sure it's surely ours and maybe there's a bit of a picture for us even as we hold the bread and the cup and in the bread and the cup we remember Jesus died on the cross for our sins was buried and raised again securing our forgiveness and our joy But also when we take the Lord's table, according to 1 Corinthians 11, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so we've got this future joy that we're remembering as we hold these. Does this make sense? So would you pause a moment and holding the bread and the cup, would you talk to Jesus? And may I remind you, it's Jesus who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. It's Jesus who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's Jesus who says, and I am with you until the end of the age. Y'all, if you're in Christ, he's with you. And that means even in the undeliverable, seen circumstance you find yourself in, he's present. And his presence is enough for joy. Would you talk to Christ for a moment and then we'll take these together? Lord Jesus, we come a grateful people for your body broken and your blood shed on our behalf. And Lord, we remember in these moments, the writer of Hebrews said of you, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne. In Gethsemane, the cross was between you and your ultimate joy. But you reached forward to that joy and endured the cross.
And so for where we sit right now, Lord, when your providences in our life are hard and difficult and when, when life conspires to make us wonder, is this providence for my good and how will it come out? You are with us. You are for us. You never leave us. You give us a peace that the world cannot offer. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Giving your life, Lord Jesus, that we could live forever with the Father. We remember that historic moment and we remember forward and proclaim you're coming again. Take and eat the bread and drink the cup. May I invite you to stand, please? You know, one of the ways we invite future joy into our present is in song, isn't it? There's something about music, you see, that emotionally, experientially just reminds us, brings us, touches us, if I can say that. And we want to worship in this way. And so let us sing of the reality, you see, that ensures our joy, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.